Greetings to all of you. I hope you had a great Christmas with family and friends. I want to welcome all of us at Center Street Church. Uh, we are one church, as you know, that meets in many locations. And in this final worship service weekend of the year, we have all our campuses worshiping together. So we have a full house here. And I want to especially welcome those of us uh, joining us from our campus in Northwest Calgary, uh, Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. That's great, yes. It's wonderful. We're thrilled that we all can worship together in one location today. I also want to welcome our online viewers as well. Uh, we are in a sermon series from the Gospel of Matthew, and we're calling the first part of the series Revealing Jesus. Uh, Matthew, the Gospel writer, gives us varying portraits of Jesus in his opening chapters. So far in this series, we have encountered Jesus as the promised one, the Savior, a man of sorrows, King of kings. And today, we're going to look at another description of Jesus found here in Matthew, Jesus, the Nazarene. Uh, years ago, when I was in a seminary, I went for a job interview for a summer position. And one of the questions they asked me in the interview was, Give us three adjectives that would best describe you. I told them I have so many amazing qualities that it is impossible to narrow it down to three. <laughs> no, just kidding. I don't remember what answer I gave. Uh, but when you're asked a question like that, you're expected to give a response that would impress others. Three words is all you have. So talk about your best traits, qualities that will leave an impression. So others will take notice of you. Now, while you can expect people to come up with different uh, descriptive adjectives, there's one word I guarantee you people will not use to refer to themselves. And this is the word, ordinary. You will not leave an impression on others with this word. And who wants to be ordinary? Uh, deep inside, we all want to be a cut above the rest. Even in a Christian environment, we frown upon this word. We despise the ordinary. It is easy to be drawn to things that are greater, higher, smarter, all of the comparatives and superlatives. A Christian author, Michael Horton, writes these insightful words. Listen to me. Ordinary has to be one of the loneliest words in our vocabulary today. Who wants a bumper sticker that announces to the neighborhood, my child is an ordinary student? <laughs> who wants to be that ordinary person who lives in an ordinary town, is a member of an ordinary church, and has ordinary friends, and works an ordinary job? Our life has to count. We have to leave our mark, have a legacy, make a difference. We have to live up to our Facebook profile. It's one of the, Horton says, it's one of the newer versions of salvation by works. I totally resonate with these words. And that is why the quality of Jesus that we are going to look at today is priceless. Most people of his time did not give Jesus much attention. He looked like a regular guy. So people passed by him without bothering to take a second glance. This is not a Messiah coming up with pomp and glory in order to wow all the people. 
there was nothing dramatic or spectacular on the outside about Jesus. An adjective that would have been often used to describe Jesus is the word that we are uncomfortable with, ordinary. And that's why Jesus was called the Nazarene. It was synonymous with being ordinary. And as we grasp this aspect of Jesus' life, we all can learn to find significance in obscurity. Be secure in the individual plans God has for us, whether we are at the forefront or we work behind the scenes. Whatever the year ahead may have in store for us, we can find comfort in knowing that the role we are playing is important to God. I'm going to ask us to stand as we read our text for today from uh, Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 to 23. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Lord, we thank you for the rich portraits of Jesus that we find here in Matthew. And our heart's desire is to know Jesus more. So now we pray that you would open our understanding, that you will help us to see the truth of your word, that it will speak to our heart, minister to our spirits, and will have a deep impact upon our lives. So come, Lord, and speak to us in the power of your spirit. We give this time into your hands. We pray this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Whether you're a Christian or not, if you were asked to come up with important figures from the first century, chances are you will come up with biblical characters. We will start with Jesus. Uh, then list some of the apostles like Peter, John, Matthew, Mark, definitely the apostle Paul, Mary, the mother of Jesus. But if the same question was asked in the first century, that list would have been significantly different. In fact, Luke chapter 3 gives us some of those prominent names of that time in the first century, the movers and shakers of the society. Tiberius Caesar, the second emperor of Rome. Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea. Herod and Philip, who came from a family of rulers. Annas and Caiaphas, who served as members of the high priesthood. These were the well-known, prominent names of those times who exerted their influence in politics, military, religion. However, years later, They've been almost forgotten. 
Probably the only reason they are recognized today is not for their personal contribution, but the fact that the Bible refers to them like a footnote. When God wanted to save the world, he didn't turn to Herod or Caesar or Caiaphas. Rather, when you look at the cast of characters in the Christmas narrative, you see the ordinary ones playing an extraordinary role. They were the VIPs. A simple teenage couple play a crucial role in the entry of Jesus into our world and keeping him safe. And a humanly insignificant place called Nazareth all of a sudden receives the spotlight. Clearly, our human perceptions of power is very different from God's. The last time I spoke, we looked at Joseph, Mary, and baby Jesus who landed as refugees in Egypt because Herod wanted to get rid of the newborn king. We don't know exactly how long they stayed in Egypt, at the most a year. They were waiting for Herod the Great to die. And when that happened, Joseph receives another dream. Our text tells us in verses 19 to 21, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. So as soon as Herod the Great is out of the scene, Joseph receives yet another dream. This is the fourth of the fifth dream in the first two chapters of Matthew. See, there is a flurry of communication taking place between heaven and earth in the Christmas story. And here you find an important lesson about the nature of God. God loves to guide his people and direct us in all of our decisions. At every critical juncture, Mary and Joseph experience a divine intervention, a specific, explicit guidance from heaven. The God of the Bible presents himself as a warm, heavenly father who is interested in all aspects of the lives of his children. So God readily makes himself available to counsel us and guide us. This is not an absentee dad who has given us a manual and instructions on how to live and wants us to figure this all on our own. Rather, he takes delight when we express our dependence on him and seek his face. So as we are looking into a new year, Know that God is not dispassionate or distant, but he loves to guide your steps and offer specific guidance for you. That is God's precious gift for all of his children. So no matter what the year holds, how smooth or bumpy it's going to be, the promise of God is to be our personal counselor and help us to navigate through life. You know, when we talk about God's guidance, also keep in mind that they are unpredictable and sometimes far too ordinary for our liking. From a human perspective, we just don't get it. 
But God is always up to something good and accomplishing his purposes. So that's what is being played out here in our text. As Joseph and Mary decided to return to Israel, they had no idea where to go. Maybe they assumed that the best place to go would be Bethlehem where Jesus was born. Although Bethlehem was a small town, it nevertheless was the royal city of David. Surely this would be a good place to raise Jesus in the familiar Davidic town. Or how about Jerusalem? Even better, the city with the temple. That's where all the religious elite hung out. Jerusalem was the center of religion and politics. Wouldn't that be a good place to raise the Messiah? The problem was, Herod had divided his kingdom between his sons. And Judea was ruled by one of Herod's sons who was equally ruthless. So Joseph had to cross out the option of Bethlehem and Jerusalem, even though they looked promising on the outside, because it simply was not safe. Verses 22 and 23 of Matthew 2 tells us, but when he, Joseph, heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So the last of the five dreams confirmed the place where the young family needed to settle in. Nazareth. Nazareth. But Joseph, if you notice, never speaks a word in the Gospels. Typical husband. And not a single line is attributed to him. He's merely shown as an obedient man who followed God's instructions. And the man who did all that God asked of him would have found this final dream to be the most difficult to obey. As a family, they would have gladly settled anywhere in Israel, but not Nazareth. Why? Because that was their own hometown where Mary and Joseph grew up. It was the same town that knew all about Mary's pregnancy. Rumors abounded in the small town, resulting in scorn and shame. Small towns don't treat kindly boys with questionable parentage. And to raise a young family in a place where they would have been viewed as morally suspect would have been hard, extremely hard for Joseph. Yet Joseph followed God's guidance, obeyed him. Not understanding everything, he submitted to God's plan and settled his young family in Nazareth. Nazareth is much more widely known today than during Jesus' time. It was not among the 63 villages of Galilee mentioned in the Hebrew Talmud. Nor do you find it in the 45 villages mentioned by Josephus, a famous first century Jewish historian. With a population of less than 500 people, Nazareth was an insignificant, unknown town. It was a town of farmers, shepherds, and laborers. And because the Romans had a military garrison near Nazareth, 
The people of this area were seen as co-conspirators with Rome. So the rest of the Jews saw the people of Nazareth as traitors. So you could not have picked a town of lower social status than Nazareth. And this is where Jesus, the Son of God, the King of kings, the Savior of the world, will be raised. And he would spend the first 30 years of his life in total obscurity in this sleepy little place. You wonder, what was God thinking? Did Jesus need the right exposure, the context, the training, and the expertise to launch a worldwide ministry? Why spend 30 years of his life as an unsung hero in a remote corner of the world where nobody would take notice of him? Nazareth had no reputation. The mention of its very name received scorn and contempt. If you remember, Peter encountered Jesus and later told Nathaniel that he had seen the Messiah who is Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel's famous response was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The sophisticated Jews who lived in Jerusalem ridiculed the people who lived in places like Nazareth. Away from the spotlight, without any recognition, Jesus spent most of his life in this run-of-the-mill town. If you think about this, only three years of Jesus' life are made visible to us through the writings of the Bible. That's only 10%. We don't even have a window into 90% of Jesus' life which were spent here in Nazareth. Alicia Britt Cole, in her phenomenal book called Anonymous, Jesus' Hidden Years and Yours, asks a great question. When we say today that we want to be like Jesus, would we be willing to live 90% of our life in total obscurity? Jesus grew up as an uncelebrated boy in an unknown town, underestimated by everyone. Here in Nazareth, Jesus went to the synagogue regularly and heard human teachers expound the word of God which he had inspired. Jesus went to school to receive education. The fountain of all wisdom and knowledge was being taught by humans. Jesus submitted himself to his parents and walked in obedience to them. If you remember when he had this encounter with the religious leaders in Jerusalem at the age of 12, the text in Luke tells us right after that, in Luke chapter 2, verses 15 and 51 and 52, then he, Jesus, went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them, referring to his parents. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. 
Jesus was obedient to his parents. Who are his parents? Just peasants, simple-minded, common folks, while he is the great I am, the Lord Almighty. And Jesus would willingly submit himself to his parents and do whatever they asked of him. And I speak to our young people for a moment here. When you're a teenager, you go through a phase where you think your parents know nothing, that they're stupid and you know it all and have figured it all out. And you find it very difficult to obey and you constantly challenge their authority. We all have been there, so you're not alone here. But I tell you, you can learn something from Jesus. If Jesus, who truly knew all things, was willing to obey his simple-minded parents, you have no right to question the parental authority God has placed over your life. You know, someone said, you know, when I was 18, I thought my father was pretty dumb. After a while, when I got to be 21, I was amazed to find out how much he had learned in three years' time. <laughs> so here in Nazareth, away from the spotlight, Jesus matured in stature and wisdom. He worked with his hands as a carpenter, or more likely a stone cutter. And these were the formative years of his life where God prepared him for the role that he was going to play in the future. And in those ordinary moments, away from glamour and publicity, God was shaping and molding Jesus. These hidden years of Jesus' life served as a preparation for what lay ahead of him. If that was true of Jesus, that is true of our hidden years as well. Or maybe you're in a season right now where you feel hidden. Your gifts and talents are underestimated. You're a homemaker, and your life seems to revolve around the needs of young children constantly clamoring for your attention. And you wonder deep inside, am I really making any significant contribution here? Maybe you've been waiting for a promotion at work, and no one seems to recognize your potential. You keep getting overlooked. Or you are retired, and you feel like you're just taking space, a life devoid of all action. Let me tell you the truth. 99% of us would live what would be a life of obscurity, an ordinary life. How do you find significance in the midst of all this? It is by arming yourselves with the same mindset as Jesus. We are not called to be successful. We are not called to be famous or gain applause for ourselves, but our purpose in life is to play the part God has for us in his story. See, significance is not about doing great things or living life at a frantic pace. There's so many people who live like that, but their accomplishments have no value in light of eternity. 
See, our life becomes significant and meaningful when we turn our lives to Jesus Christ and surrender to his blueprint and his plans for your life. It may seem unimportant or trivial to those around you, but we are not rewarded in comparison with others, but our rewards are based on our faithfulness to God. So whatever our calling may be, you can live a life of significance when you have the right mindset. Most people will not recognize the name Edward Kimball from church history. He lived over 100 years ago, was a Sunday school teacher in Boston. And once, a young teenager became part of his class. And this young man was a country boy who had moved to the city. He didn't know the ways of the city or the church. And when this teenager came to the first Sunday school class, Edward Kimball gave him a Bible. And when Mr. Kimball announced to the class to turn to the Gospel of John, this young teenager had no clue what he was talking about. The other boys started to snicker. And Kimball realized what was happening. And to avoid any more embarrassment to that boy, he gently opened the Bible to the Gospel of John, handed it over to him. Now, Kimball was an ordinary Sunday school teacher who through the eyes of faith saw the spiritual potential in this young teenager. So he went one day to the shoe store where the young man was working and had a long conversation with him. And in that conversation led him to faith in Christ. The obscure, unknown Sunday school teacher impacted one life. And this one life went on to change the lives of hundreds of thousands because the young teenager was none other than D.L. Moody, the greatest evangelist the world has ever seen. And this past summer, I was in Chicago and saw the Moody Bible Institute, the historic Moody Church, and all of the legacy of D.L. Moody's ministry. And think about this. Everything was made possible because of an unknown Sunday school teacher who faithfully played his role in God's story. We can find significance in seemingly obscure things when we have the big picture that there is a God actively at work directing everything to advance his kingdom. Now we come to an interesting verse in our text, verse 23. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. You know, it was no accident that Jesus would grow up in Nazareth. This was all along in line with God's plan for Jesus' life. The last time I spoke, I brought to your attention the nature of biblical prophecies. While some prophecies have to do with the future, not all prophecies are predictive in nature. 
So here in our text, we are faced with yet another unique challenge. And nowhere do you find in the Old Testament any direct reference that Jesus will be called a Nazarene. And Nazareth is not even mentioned once in the Old Testament. So did Matthew just make this up? No, I don't believe that. Why? There's a clue that helps us to understand what Matthew is communicating here. If you see, he's not quoting a single prophet, but he's using the word prophets in plural. So that's an indication that Matthew is not referring to a specific prophecy of Scripture, but the teachings of the prophets in general. So there's a history behind how the town got its name, Nazareth. It was given this name for a reason. Nazareth comes from the Hebrew word netzer, which means branch or shoot. The imagery here is of a tree chopped down, raised to the ground, and a shoot grows from the stump of this fallen tree, allowing a new tree to spring up on the old one that had died. And the prophets used this metaphor to refer to Israel as that fallen tree raised to the ground by its enemies. But that's not the end. The prophets spoke of the promise of revival, that out of the stump of this fallen tree will come a shoot which in turn will become a branch, and that branch is a reference to the Messiah. So they would be led by a messianic figure who will rebuild and restore them to a place of prominence. And that was a promise of hope. Let me give you an example here. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The word for branch there is netzer. So based on promises like these in the Old Testament, the people who founded this little town named it Nazareth. It was a way of saying, it really doesn't matter how the circumstances look like or how gloomy it may appear. With God, we always have hope. Nazareth expressed the yearnings and the longings of God's people for the Messiah to arrive. And little did they know that out of their tiny little village, the hope that they had all along been anticipating would arise. So Matthew concludes the reference to Jesus as the Nazarene is a fulfillment of prophecy. Here's yet another aspect to the prophecy. It points to the humble beginnings of the Messiah. As I told you earlier, Nazareth is synonymous with ordinary. Several prophecies in the Old Testament allude to the lowly nature of the Messiah, that he would be despised and looked down. Here's a familiar one in Isaiah 53 too. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. When they called Jesus the Nazarene, the word ordinary was stamped on him. 
This is not an earthly monarch presenting himself with pomp and glory, but Jesus is the despised suffering servant who identifies with the human race in every way. Jesus was not shielded or sheltered in some ivory tower. He experienced the fullness of human life, including its harshness. So Nazarene is a fitting way to describe who Jesus is and what he stands for. Earlier in the gospel, Matthew says Jesus would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. But there's no indication that anyone ever addressed Jesus as Emmanuel during his ministry. But Nazareth became tied to the name of Jesus. It's a lowly label that is associated with Jesus all through the Gospels, all through his ministry, and even in the book of Acts. Jesus identified himself as Jesus of Nazareth. Many people called him Jesus of Nazareth. Even unclean spirits addressed him as Jesus of Nazareth. Blind Bartimaeus heard that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by, and he reached out to him in desperation. At the time of his arrest, Jesus walked out to meet the arresting party and asked who they were looking for. And their response was, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I am he. The Gospel of John tells us the inscription on the cross of Jesus were these words, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And even in the book of Acts, this pattern seems to continue. Peter, in his famous sermon on the day of Pentecost, refers to Jesus of Nazareth as a man accredited by God. When Peter and John see a lame man at the temple, they did not heal him in the name of the risen, ascended Jesus, but rather their words to him was, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. See, Jesus carries this label to signify something to us who feel hidden, unimportant, insignificant. Don't ever despise what is ordinary, for indeed great things can come out of it. Let me close with this application. This is a time of the year. As the year draws to a close, people are pinning their hopes and expectations on 2020, that this would turn out to be a magical year. Who in the world wants 2020 to be an ordinary year? That's because we continue to despise the ordinary. So somehow we wish and hope that things all will be spectacular in the new year. As one website states, according to a dazzling number of predictions that single out the year 2020, it's going to be one heck of a year. Messages like these may make us feel positive. Here's the problem. How do you know? How do you possibly know what the year Ahead holds. Joe Queenan, who's a writer for the New York Times, criticizes what he calls our culture's inability to accept the ordinary. 
he goes on to write, every experience, we insist, every experience be a watershed, every meal extraordinary, every friendship epical, every concert superb, every sunset meta-celestial. Isn't that true? Out of the many things that we are terrified of today, something that tops our list is the fear of being bored. We gauge everything on how it fares in the fun meter, even church services. Do we realize that? You know, we've had a busy December here at Center Street Church. If you remember, our Christmas concerts were packed. Christmas Eve, services were full, over 10,000 people. People came in droves. And we are so easily drawn to the spectacular. But the idea of coming to church week after week and hearing the plain old teachings of God's word doesn't seem to be appealing. It's much too ordinary. So we will call ourselves as Christians, but we will come to church four times a year. Don't ask us to commit any more than that. The challenge for our generation is to embrace the ordinary and come to ordinary worship services on a regular basis. Discipline yourself to have ordinary, quiet times with God daily. Remain content and faithful in an ordinary marriage. Volunteer actively in ordinary ministries of the church. Ordinary, it doesn't mean mediocre. That's the definition our culture has given to this word. But ordinary is about being diligent in living every day for Jesus rather than looking for the next big thing around the corner. By the way, if you come up to me and said, today's sermon was ordinary, I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> Only this week. <laughs> you know, I don't know what 2020 is going to be like, but this is what I do know. If you look only for euphoric moments in 2020, they're going to be few and far between. But it's those mundane moments, those seemingly insignificant decisions, those day-to-day -day conversations with family and friends, that's where most of life is lived, and how you do in those moments will determine how 2020 will be for you. It'll affect your spiritual life. It'll affect your spiritual life, your relationships, your family life, your Christian witness, and your impact on those around you. While the world around us may be caught up with the hype of a new year, new expectations, new resolutions, my challenge to you is to embrace the ordinary like Jesus did. After all, not only is Jesus the Nazarene, so are we as his followers. The book of Acts tells us that the Christians in the early church were called as the sect of the Nazarenes. And in so many places in the world today, Christians are continued to be called Nazarenes. 
We all are Nazarenes, ordinary Christians who bear the name of our Savior, Jesus of Nazareth. And ordinary Christians are marked by one thing, faithfulness to God's call for their life. They are unwavering. They do the right thing over and over, and they stay the course in their ordinary callings. For that is equated as success in the eyes of God. I'm going to ask us to stand as we come to an end. You know, after a flurry of activities to do with Christmas, the final days of whatever is left of this year, gives us a great opportunity to quieten ourselves, to reflect, see God's hand in this year, and prayerfully prepare your heart for what He has in store for you for the year to come. And I pray that each one of us here will embrace God's will and God's plan for you for 2020. That you will make an unwavering, resilient commitment to stay the course. To not be looking for the next fad out there, but be sincere and authentic in the way you live your Christian life on a day-to-day basis. Let's close our eyes for a moment and speak to God in the quietness of this moment. And after a moment of silence, I'll close us in prayer. Jesus of Nazareth, We worship you today. We worship you because of who you are, for the model that you have set for us, a model of faithfulness, a model of unwavering commitment to the will of God. For you came only to do the will of your Father. But you gave us hearts like yours to make that commitment to embrace the ordinary callings of life. That whatever you have called us to be in our work life, in our family life, in our neighborhood, in our ministries here in the church, may we be passionate about what we do. Even those simple things. Believing that you are at work behind the scenes, collectively using all of our efforts to advance your kingdom. Help us not to be just emotional or sentimental, but be rock-solid Christians with you as the foundation of our life. And we know that, Lord, with you as the foundation, whatever the year brings, we will be okay. That you will sustain us and carry us through according to your promises. You promise to be our personal guide. So I pray for that for every one of us here. Help us to navigate through life, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, that all aspects of us will be brought under the Lordship of Christ, 
that we will be able to live a life that will bring you maximum glory. And even as we leave this place, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of our Heavenly Father, and the sweet, unfailing fellowship of the Holy Spirit may rest and abide with each and every one of us, both this year, the year to come, and forevermore. Amen. Well, we'll have prayer partners here available who'll be happy to pray with you. God bless you. Mm -hmm.